Hello, everybody. Welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 286. Today's big Bible question is, how important is it to be wholehearted? So hello, friends. Happy Thursday to you in my household. We are now entering full day number two without my wife, who is visiting family in Alabama at the moment. Now, I initially, when I wrote that script, I said that she has fled to Alabama, abandoning me and the five kids, but honestly, that'd be kind of inaccurate, since we did get her a plane ticket to go see her family and friends for her birthday a few weeks ago. So far, the kids have really pulled it together and uh, not killed each other even once, nor burned the house down or something like that. The youngest kids are homeschooled here, and they go to a weekly co-op. The oldest is in college and the second oldest in public high school, but they're all home doing distance learning because of a little virus I like to call COVID. So they ask me a lot of school questions. I don't really know why I'm telling you all this, but I don't really have any adults around here to talk to, so I guess I'm unloading on you all. Shout out to our new subscriber in Illinois in the Champaign-Springfield-Decatur area who downloaded 102 episodes of the podcast today. That does happen a few times a week, and I always wonder if somebody is, like, planning on just binging the show or catching up or what, but hey, welcome aboard anyway. Uh, Enjoy those 50 hours, I guess. Also, a shout-out to our friends in India who have, just in, like, the last two months, surpassed Canada, the UK, Australia, and New Zealand to become the number two country in the world for Bible reading podcast downloads. Now, we have lots of listeners in India now, and I appreciate you all very much. I used to co-host a podcast called The Gospel Friends, which that name was kind of a play on the Super Friends. It got slightly popular in certain places, and we took a hiatus on that show one time for a few months. When we came back and I checked the stats, after a few weeks of not checking the stats, something very interesting had happened. We all of a sudden had become big in Japan, with like thousands of downloads all over Japan. We never figured out quite how that happened, but we did do an episode entitled, I Want to Hug You Like a Japanese Chair, that was downloaded a ton over there, so there's that. Anyway, I'm totally rambling. Like I said, I miss my wife. Don't have any adults to talk to. Today's Bible readings, getting back on track, include 1 Kings chapter 11. Psalms 92 and 93, Ezekiel 41, and Philippians chapter 2. Normally, we would cover the beginning of Philippians 2, uh, the humility and character of Christ, but we actually already did that in episode 89 when we read through Philippians 2 the first time, so a different focus today. Today, we're in 1 Kings 11, and we're considering the remarkable and really kind of surprising and, I guess, startling fall of Solomon. As we've been reading, Solomon was incredibly smart and wise, and people from all over the world came and sat at his feet to listen to him. He was also incredibly blessed by God, like in practically every way possible, as much as possible. Like we read like yesterday, I think it was, or the day before, silver was as common as rocks in Israel during Solomon's reign. That's just crazy. Solomon spoke with God personally on at least two occasions and presided over one of the most powerful worship services in the Bible. How is it possible that such a person could fall? Well, in Solomon's life, we see several warnings for us to learn from. Number one, we see a warning that being wise is not enough. 
Knowing is not half the battle, as we've talked about before. It's really only a small fraction of the battle. Solomon was warned by God to be wholehearted and devoted. And and Solomon just simply did not obey those commands. He knew what he was supposed to do. He knew it like he knew it because God had told him personally and his dad did too. But he rejected that wisdom. So the second warning we see that we can apply to our lives Having an abundance of anything is not necessarily good for our spiritual health. Solomon had it all, everything. He was blessed beyond measure, but he still fell away. So we should take heed to that. Finally, number three, seeing miracles happen and having full assurance that God is God is not enough to guarantee faithfulness. Jesus mentions the blessings that come to those who have faith in him and yet don't actually see him. Solomon is like the reverse of that. Solomon has seen the goodness of God, has seen God. He's seen the power of God. He's heard the words of God, and yet he turned away from God. We must learn from Solomon that you and I, we can fall from any height. So let's read the passage now. It's kind of long, but let's see what we can learn. First Kings chapter 11, verse 1, King Solomon loved many foreign women in addition to Pharaoh's daughter. Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them and they must not intermarry with you because they will turn your heart away to follow their gods. To these women, Solomon was deeply attached in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 who were concubines and they turned his heart away. When Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away to follow other gods. He was not wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord his God, as his father David had been. Solomon followed Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Milcom, the abhorrent idol of the Ammonites. Solomon did what was evil in the Lord's sight, and unlike his father David, he did not remain loyal to the Lord. At that time, Solomon built a high place for Shamash, the abhorrent idol of Moab, and for Milcom, the abhorrent idol of the Ammonites, on the hill across from Jerusalem. He did the same for all his foreign wives who were burning incense and offering sacrifices to their gods. So the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. He had commanded him about this so that he would not follow other gods, but Solomon did not do what the Lord had commanded. Then the Lord said to Solomon, Since you have done this and did not keep my covenant and my statutes, which I commanded you, I will tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. However, I will not do it during your lifetime for the sake of your father David. I will tear it out of your son's hand. Yet I will not tear the entire kingdom away from him. I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem that I chose. So the Lord raised up Hadad the Edomite as an enemy against Solomon. He was one of the royal family in Edom. Earlier, when David was in Edom, Joab, the commander of the army, had gone to bury the dead and had struck down every male in Edom, for Joab and all Israel had remained there six months until he had killed every male in Edom. Hadad fled to Egypt, along with some Edomites from his father's servants. At that time, Hadad was a small boy. Hadad and his men set out from Midian and went to Paran. They took men with them from Paran and went to Egypt, to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who gave Hadad a house, ordered that he be given food and gave him land. Pharaoh liked Hadad so much that he gave him a wife, the sister of his own wife, Queen Tapens. Tapens' sister gave birth to Hadad's son, Ginyabeth. Tapens 
herself weaned him in Pharaoh's palace, and Ginyabath lived there along with Pharaoh's sons. When Hadad heard in Egypt that David rested with his ancestors and that Joab, the commander of the army, was dead, Hadad said to Pharaoh, Let me leave, so I may go to my own country. But Pharaoh asked him, What do you lack here with me for you to want to go back to your own country? Nothing, he replied, but please let me leave. God raised up Rezin, son of Eliada, as an enemy against Solomon. Rezin had fled from his master, King Hadaditzer of Zobah, and gathered men to himself. He became leader of a raiding party when David killed the Zobites. He went to Damascus, lived there, and became king in Damascus. Rezin was Israel's enemy throughout Solomon's reign, adding to the trouble Hadad had caused. He reigned over Aram and loathed Israel. Now Solomon's servant, Jeroboam, son of Nebat, was an Ephraimite from Zeradah. His, his widowed mother's name was Zeruah. Jeroboam rebelled against Solomon, and this is the reason he rebelled against the king. Solomon had built the supporting terraces and repaired the opening in the wall of the city of his father David. Now the man Jeroboam was capable, and Solomon noticed the young man because he was getting things done, so he appointed him over the entire labor force of the house of Joseph. During that time, the prophet Ahijah the Shilonite met Jeroboam on the road as Jeroboam came out of Jerusalem. Now Ahijah had wrapped himself with a new cloak, and the two of them were alone in the open field. Then Ahijah took hold of the new cloak he had on, tore it into twelve pieces, and said to Jeroboam, Take ten pieces for yourself, for this is what the Lord God of Israel says. I am about to tear the kingdom out of Solomon's hand. I will give you ten tribes, but one tribe will remain his for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city I chose out of all the tribes of Israel, for they have abandoned me. They have bowed down to Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, to Shemosh, the god of Moab, and to Milcom, the god of the Ammonites. They have not walked in my ways to do what is right in my sight and to carry out my statutes and my judgments as his father David did. However, I will not take the whole kingdom from him, but will let him be ruler all the days of his life for the sake of my servant David, whom I chose and who kept my commands and my statutes. I will take ten tribes of the kingdom from his son and give them to you. I will give one tribe to his son so that my servant David will always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city I chose for myself to put my name there. I will appoint you and you will reign as king over all you want and you will be king over Israel. After that, if you obey all I command you, walk in my ways and do what is right in my sight in order to keep my statutes and my commands as my servant David did, I will be with you. I will build you a lasting dynasty just as I built for David, and I will give you Israel. I will humble David's descendants because of their unfaithfulness, but not forever. Therefore Solomon tried to kill Jeroboam, but he fled to Egypt to King Shishak of Egypt, where he remained until Solomon's death. The rest of the events of Solomon's reign, along with all his accomplishments and his wisdom, are written in the book of Solomon's events. The length of Solomon's reign in Jerusalem over all Israel totaled 40 years. Solomon rested with his ancestors and was buried in the city of his father David. His son Rehoboam became king in his place. So one word stands out to me here in this passage, and it's the word wholehearted. We see it in verse 4. When Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away to follow other gods. He was not wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord his God as his father David had been. Now, I do find it interesting that David is considered wholehearted, even though he committed murder. I believe the reason for this is that David was really genuinely, authentically repentant for his sin and followed God wholeheartedly after this. 
He also paid a terrible, terrible price for that sin, and yet Solomon, for all of his wisdom, did not learn from the horrible mistake of his father. Now, I wanted to close our discussion with one more warning, and this is the most sobering warning so far. It is possible for you and I to know the Word, to believe the Word, and even preach the Word, and still not follow the Word ourselves. The first use of the word wholehearted in many modern translations of the Bible came from the lips of Solomon himself in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 54 through 61. When Solomon finished praying, oh, and by the way, this is in the the middle of that worship service we mentioned earlier. When Solomon finished praying this entire prayer and petition to the Lord, he got up from kneeling before the altar of the Lord with his hands spread out toward heaven. And he stood and blessed the whole congregation of Israel with a loud voice. Blessed be the Lord. He has given rest to his people Israel according to all he has said. Not one of all the good promises he made through his servant Moses has failed. May the Lord our God be with us as if he was with our ancestors. May he not abandon us or leave us so that he causes us to be devoted to him, to walk in all his ways and to keep his commands, statutes, and ordinances which he commanded our ancestors. May my words with which I have made petition before the Lord be near the Lord our God day and night. May he uphold his servant's cause and the cause of his people Israel as each day requires. May all the peoples of the earth know that the Lord is God. There is no other. That's right, Solomon. There is no other God. Verse 61, Be wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord our God to walk in his statutes and to keep his commands. Now, note well how Solomon exhorted the Israelites to be wholeheartedly devoted to God. He preached it. He proclaimed it. He believed it, but he did not live it. The Apostle Paul seems quite well aware of this danger, aware that it is possible to run the spiritual equivalent of a marathon and drop out with only a few hundred yards left and not win the prize. So Paul in 1 Corinthians 9, 24-27 says, Don't you know that all the runners in a stadium all race, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way to win the prize. Now, everyone who competes exercises self-control in everything. They do it to receive a perishable crown, but we an imperishable crown. So I do not run like one who runs aimlessly or box like one beating the air. Instead, I discipline my body and bring it under strict control so that after preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified. So Paul realizes that you can preach a truth and not live a truth. A few chapters later, he further exhorts the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2, where he says, Now I want to make it clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold to the message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So likewise, friends, I exhort you and I exhort me. We must run the race and finish it well. We may must take hold of the good news of Jesus and keep hold of it for all of our lives, wholeheartedly looking to him, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Now, I don't want to close giving you the idea that you must save yourself and that it is your full power to, it is in your full power to keep yourself wholehearted because honestly, that would undervalue the preserving value and power of Jesus and overvalue your ability to save yourself. The strength to persevere is not yours, but Christ's, and yet we must 
and you must hold firm. We must run the race, and we must fix our eyes on Jesus constantly. Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, so that you won't grow weary and give up. Amen. Psalm 92, verse 1. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praise to your name, Most High, to declare your faithful love in the morning and your faithfulness at night, with a ten-stringed harp and the music of a lyre. For you have made me rejoice, Lord, by what you have done. I will shout for joy because of the works of your hands. How magnificent are your works, Lord, how profound your thoughts. A stupid person does not know, a fool does not understand this. Though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they will be eternally destroyed. But you, Lord, are exalted forever. For indeed, Lord, your enemies, indeed your enemies will perish. All evildoers will be scattered. You have lifted up my horn like that of a wild ox. I have been anointed with the finest oil. My eyes look at my enemies when evildoers rise against me. My ears hear them. The righteous thrive like a palm tree and grow like a cedar tree in Lebanon, planted in the house of the Lord. They thrive in the courts of our God. They will still bear fruit in old age, healthy and green, to declare, The Lord is just. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Amen. Psalm 93, verse 1. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed, enveloped in strength. The world is firmly established. It cannot be shaken. Your throne has been established from the beginning. You are from eternity. The floods have lifted up, Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their pounding waves. Greater than the roar of a huge torrent, the mighty breakers of the sea, the Lord on high is majestic. Lord, your testimonies are completely reliable. Holiness adorns your house for all the days to come. Ezekiel 41 verse 1. Next he brought me into the great hall and measured the jams. On each side the width of the jam was ten and a half feet. The width of the entrance was seventeen and a half feet. And the side walls of the entrance were eight and three quarters feet wide on each side. He also measured the length of the great hall, seventy feet, and the width, thirty-five feet. He went inside the next room and measured the jams at the entrance. They were three and a half feet wide. The entrance was ten and a half feet wide, and the width of the entrance's side walls on each side was twelve and a quarter feet. He then measured the length of the room adjacent to the great hall, thirty-five feet, and the width, thirty-five feet, and he said to me, This is the most holy place. Then he measured the wall of the temple. It was ten and a half feet thick. The width of the side rooms all around the temple was seven feet. The side rooms were arranged one above another in three stories of thirty rooms each. There were ledges on the wall of the temple all around to serve as supports for the side rooms so that the supports would not be in the temple wall itself. The side rooms surrounding the temple widened at each successive story for the structure surrounding the temple went up by stages. This was the reason for the temple's broadness as it rose, and so one would go up from the lowest story to the highest by means of the middle one. I saw that the temple had had a raised platform surrounding it. This foundation for the side rooms was ten and a half feet high. The thickness of the outer wall of the side rooms was eight and three quarters feet. The free space between the side rooms of the temple and the outer chambers was thirty-five feet all around the temple." 
The side rooms opened into the free space, one entrance toward the north and another to the south. The area of free space was eight and three quarters feet wide all around. Now the building that faced the temple yard toward the west was 122 and a half feet wide. The wall of the building was eight and three quarters feet thick on all sides and the building's length was 157 and a half feet. Then the man measured the temple. It was 175 feet long. In addition, the temple yard and the building, including its walls, were 175 feet long. The width of the front of the temple along with the temple yard to the east was 175 feet. Next, he measured the length of the building facing the temple yard to the west. With its galleries on each side, it was 175 feet. The interior of the great hall and the porticos of the court, the thresholds, the beveled windows, and the balconies all around with their three levels opposite the threshold were overlaid with wood on all sides. They were paneled from the ground to the windows, but the windows were covered, reaching to the top of the entrance and as far as the inner temple and on the outside. On every wall all around, on the inside and outside, was a pattern. Carved with cherubim and palm trees, there was a palm tree between each pair of cherubim. Each cherub had two faces, a human face turned toward the palm tree on one side and a lion's face torn t- turned toward it on the other. They were carved throughout the temple on all sides. Cherubim and palm trees were carved from the ground to the top of the entrance and on the wall of the great hall. The doorposts of the great hall were square and the front of the sanctuary had the same appearance. The altar was made of wood, five and a quarter feet high and three and a half feet long. It had corners and its length and sides were of wood. And the man told me, this is the table that stands before the Lord. The great hall and the sanctuary each had a double door, and each of the doors had two swinging panels. There were two panels for one door and two for the other. Cherubim and palm trees were carved on the doors of the great hall, like those carved on the walls. There was a wooden canopy outside in front of the portico. There were beveled windows and palm trees on both sides, on the side walls of the portico, the side rooms of the temple, and the canopies. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ... Any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon 
so that I too may be cheered by news of you, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need, for he has been longing for all of you and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Amen. Well, friends, may the Lord bless you. May he keep you. May he guide you and draw you close to him. May his face shine on you. Good day and Godspeed.